I'm Bonnie, and I'm glad that you guys are here to talk about trafficking that's taking place in America and in our backyards. There was another woman that was going to come with me, uh, Chelsea Buckley. She's a survivor of trafficking in the United States, but she has a 13-year-old son who, for those who have teenagers, will relate. He needed a little bit more attention, and so she wasn't able to pull away. Um, but I... A lot of times we do talks 50-50 with a survivor or on our own, and I have a lot of different stories I want to share with you and material to cover, so I'm, st I'm glad that you're still here. I know it's totally fine if you're here who um, and not registered, but is everyone here, people who signed up for the list, on the list? Okay. Okay, great. I'm going to raise an elbow because I'm here as a replacement for someone. I have no idea what they signed up for. So. Oh, well, <laughs> you are like, we're going to talk about trafficking in the United States. So whoever you're, you know, I don't know if afterwards you'll give them a high five or punch them in the face, but <laughs> I'm glad that you could be their proxy. I don't even know if they signed up for this. I just saw oh. this and I was like, hey, that, that's what oh. I care about. So. Well, then welcome. This is being recorded. I just want you all to know. Um, so if you, uh, later I'll be taking questions. If you ta like ask a question, I do want you to ask questions um, and ask them as open. As there, I mean, I know it's a an old saying that there are no dumb questions. There are no dumb questions because it's how we learn, you know. So um, how about I'll just start us with prayer and we will go. God. I thank you that you are the God who sees, and you are the God who sees me and each person in this room and the churches they represent and the communities they're from and uh, all of our anxieties and to-do lists that are hanging over our heads right now that we would put them aside. We thank you, God, for inviting us to a general assembly. We thank you, God, that we can meet in person again. We pray against COVID-19 at this assembly for each and every person and each and every individual. We pray for our next few hours as we engage in a daunting topic, but on behalf of your daughters, of your image bearers, we want to eagerly learn what is happening to them. So we pray that you would meet us here, Holy Spirit, Lord God, Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. Well, okay, so for those who don't know who I am, I'm Bonnie Gatchell, and I'm a teaching elder with the Presbytery of the East. And 12 years ago, I started an organization called Root, now called Root One Ministry. And what Root One does is that we interrupt injustice. We engage with women who are sexually trafficked here in the United States by entering strip clubs and meeting with the women who work in the strip clubs. Um, and the reason that we do that is because I believe, and I would think that everyone in this room is in agreement, that everyone is made in the image of God. And we also do that because I believe no little girl wants to be a stripper when she grows up. Right? So we ask ourselves, don't start with this adult woman in the club. Start with what happened in this little girl's life to bring her to this place of working in the strip, strip clubs. And the other reason that we do it is because the genealogy of Jesus is riddled with women who are exploited and isolated and abused. And Jesus could have chose any family to step into, and he stepped into that one. 
And so it has to matter to him. And so it has to matter to me as a follower of Christ and co-heir of Christ and to each one of us. Um, And I'll unpack a little bit more of that later. So for the last 12 years, we've been training teams of women on how to enter strip clubs and how to meet with the women who work there and build relationships with them. And I've been convicted that women and young girls who work in strip clubs deserve the light of Christ. They deserve an opportunity to goodness that's been withheld from them. And that's another thing that we're going to keep unpacking. We're unpacking this morning, and we'll do the best we can in two hours, um, that trafficking of American women and American girls on American soil. Um, And then we'll talk a little bit about our response as pastors and as ruling elders to the situation at hand. So I guess what I want to start is, when you think of trafficking, what do you think of? I, I've always thought of them being kid, almost like kidnapped and taken to another country. Perfect. Yep. Kidnapped, taken to another country. Brainwashed. For sex. Brainwashed for sex. Yep. Runaways. Runaways. Drugs. Drugs. Yep. Foster kids. Foster kids. That's good. That's original. What else do you think of? Targeted. Targeted. That's also a good word. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Yep. Groomed. Mm-hmm. The internet. Good. The internet. Looking for models. Looking for models. Yep. Looking for love. Looking for love. That's how they get into it. Did somebody say vulnerable? Vulnerable. We can say it again. It's a major piece. Yeah, these are these are great words. This is good. This gives me an understanding of uh, where you guys are at in the conversation. Because I think, yes, um, traditionally, we have thought of people being kidnapped or taken from one place to another place. Uh, pretty typically, we might even think of non-white people being taken, Asians in particular, Um, But trafficking happens across all economic backgrounds and in every area. And that's a common, that's a common understanding. Um, In fact, yeah, in fact, I'll jump ahead a little bit. So even the experts just seven, eight years ago, Department of Justice, International Justice Mission, uh, Polaris Project, all, all the experts from the law enforcement to government, to Christian Christians working on the battlefield, meaning going in and rescuing traffic victims, the definition of trafficking had the word movement in it. The movement of a person or a people group for dot, dot, dot. About seven or eight years ago, we took out the word movement because what we were realizing was that girls were sleeping in their own beds at night and being trafficked. So we would say the definition of trafficking, in fact, just really quick, of all traffic victims, and this is labor and sex, according to the Department of Justice, here in the United States, 83% are American citizens, right? And in urban settings, 83% of the people, they just happen to be the same number, it doesn't represent the same women, of women who are trafficked are people from the neighborhood. They just go home at night to their own beds, to their own families. Um... And so we would say the definition of trafficking 
is a people or person, people or people group forcing another person or people group into sex through force, fraud, or coercion. Right? So that would be the definition of trafficking. So the three tactics used by pimps, strip club managers, traffickers, they're all the same, um, is coercion, fear, and shame. Yes, people are kidnapped. Yes, we know right here in America, people are kept in basements, people are tied to radio. Those things happen. But by and large, pimps and traffickers here in the United States use fear, shame, and coercion. Uh, an example is Chelsea, the young woman who was going to speak with me. She was um, born to a woman in prostitution. And when she and dad's out of the picture pretty quickly, when she's seven years old, uh, her mom is murdered, right? So she has no family, no dad, no mom. She's put in a foster care home where she's abused. She runs away from that situation. She ends up on the street. And on the street, this guy comes up to her after she's been living on the street for weeks now, right? And says to her, I have an apartment. Do you want to just sleep there? And of course, right, you're, she's not very old at this point. I want to say somewhere between 15 and 17. She says, and even as a grown adult, if you're cold and you're hungry, like, of course I want to be somewhere where there's a roof. Um, so she says, yeah, I'll come. I will, I'll stay at your place. So he gets her all the way back to the apartment and he has another young woman in the car with him. So it makes it look even safer. Um, and what he says to her is, here's the deal. You need to go back on the street and you need to earn a thousand dollars tonight by selling yourself into sex and bring me that thousand dollars and then you can sleep here. Right? And so she's stuck, right? And that's how, so he coerces her already vulnerable situation. Um, fear. Trisha Grant came to GA a couple years ago with me, well, a couple years ago with COVID time, it was like a decade ago, but, um, and spoke and shared her story. And she was a single mom at 15 and wanted really bad to be the best mom. This is the one thing she was going to do right. She read all the parenting books. She got all the parenting books from the library, sat down and read it. And two men overheard her conversation with her classmate about wanting to be a good mom, said to her, do you want a job? We, ha we have a job if you need a job. Took her to the warehouse where she raped and beaten. And then they threatened if you tell anybody that this has happened, we're going we're gonna to make sure the social services know that you're a bad mom and they'll come take your son away. And they gave her a pager and for the next year, every time they page her, she has to show up. Right? And so they used fear. Just that one line, one time of losing her kid. Shame. Teresa Flores, uh, 15 years old, straight-A student in a very white, affluent community, um, volleyball star. She goes, she gets a ride home. I've gotten a ride home before from a classmate. He takes her inside. He offers her a Coke to drink. She drinks the Coke. Why would you not? It's a hot 90-degree day. And then she wakes up a couple hours later, and she's been raped. And someone took pictures. And so he uses that moment to lord that over her head and says, if you tell anybody, we'll hand out these pictures and everyone will know what kind of girl you are. And so for two years, Teresa sleeps in her own bed. She waits a phone call. She sneaks out. 
She gets in the car with this young man, and every night she's taken to a different place where she's raped and re-raped and used. And it's family homes. She walks past pictures of families hanging on the wall down into basements. And that story takes place right here. Uh, West Bloomfield. Very, wow. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. And in 1968. So here's the deal. That's 1968. My math is terrible. That's 50 plus years ago, right? We, the church, are just now talking about trafficking. But young girls have been trafficked in America, in neighborhoods like West Bloomfield and Dorchester, Boston, and everything in between for a long time. Even used to call it white slavery. Oh, oh that, I didn't know that. I learned something. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, so you were talking about it. Yes. But not very much. But not very much. It, it never happened to a good family. Yep. That's a good fallacy to not hold on to, but to talk about. That's right. And that's the thing we have to shift is, it is this is like a big scheme of the enemy is to make us believe that it happens to others. Right? And I, this is a learning moment for me. I partnered up. Uh, a lot of our partnering churches right now are Asian American churches, and one of them we were sitting around the table discussing things, and they, this is, it just kind of is funny in a sad way, but they were certain that it was only white girls who were being trafficked. Isn't that interesting? Because then in my, right, it's like flip the story. And so it's just easy. It's just easy for us to say it's happening to the other because then we don't have to be as concerned, right? Um, and it's a big topic and it can be alarming, but here's, I want to say this right now because I know that some of you are going to feel like, are going to feel that like God's wired me kind of funky to be able to do this work and not tear up every time I step into a strip club. But I know for some of you, it is going to start to pull. Just remember that we serve the God who said after three days, Oh, death, where is your sting? That's still at play. Evil's at play, but he is very much still on the throne. Okay, so when you think about trafficking, every... Let me say it the reverse. Okay, everyone... No, let me say it that way. (laughs) Every traffic victim is being exploited. Not every exploited person is being trafficked. So trafficking, again, is the, is the force of a person by one another person or people group through force, fraud, or coercion. That's the definition of trafficking today. There are, and I'm not going to split hairs here because the importance is that the work's getting done and we're building awareness and we're reaching women who are sexually exploited, but there are groups who would uh, refer to trafficking as like modern day slavery. I have a personal qualm with that because I feel like something horrific happened in this country to a very particular people group for 400 years. So I like to leave slavery right there um, or like that phrasing, but trafficking um, for this purposes. When it's a woman who's in prostitution who doesn't have a pimp, which is pretty rare, but it happens, that's exploitation. There's not someone taking her money but other people are exploiting her vulnerability, right? Does that make sense? Um, So there's a lot of things that we could get into, and and I do want to get into them, but I wonder if we could do this, if (laughs) somehow easily we could clump into small groups, so maybe just like this five people here and then you three ladies, 
or somehow if you just divide into like just turn yourselves around and divide in small groups and we're going to do a little like exercise together that I think will help us enter like enter the story <clears throat> don't try to guess at I found this happening with other groups they were trying to guess what the right answer is really enter into the story and make a decision of like so you're going to read a part of a story you're only going to have a part and then there'll be a choice at the end do you do this or do you do this and you'll want to discuss as a group and I'm only going to give you a couple minutes for each question and then when you choose the next thing I'll bring you that part of the story and so on and so forth yeah okay okay so I really appreciate I heard all the groups really participating and digging in and I know that it can get really uncomfortable this is a real woman's story and I'll tell you uh, the real story in just a minute but how how are people feeling on the back side of that anxious depressed trapped, depressed, trapped. trapped. yep hopeless, hopeless. It's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. Yeah, we, we kind of went in the direction of the the best of the worst situations. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're all bad choices. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to restate that because I think that's good. Uh, the best of the worst situations, but they're all bad choices. Others. How many... Did anyone feel frustrated that you didn't have more information like how old this boy is. Yes. 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 How many of you asked the question, what about school? Yeah. yeah. Is she in school? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Where did she know him from? And where did she know him from? Yeah. And so I think like the real I think these are all good questions. And the thing is, she's a girl that grew up in a very I, I forget if this is in the write up, a very violent neighborhood. Do I say that in the little the first blurb you get? So she grows up in L.A. Uh, her book is actually on the back shelf back there. It's called Scars and Stilettos. That's the first edition. She since has gotten married, and so now it's Harmony Gorillo, but it's still Scars and Stilettos, and she redid it with a couple. Because as you heal, you learn more information, and then you heal, and you learn more information. And so I think you can find it on Amazon, but also back there is one of these cards. It looks like this. And on the back is a list of resources, like th that book, a couple other books, some podcasts, um, and websites if you want to dig in deeper. You can take one of these with you. Um, so yeah, Harmony, I got to hear her speak in person. In fact, I was at a anti-trafficking conference, Christian conference, years ago, probably oh, 2017, right? And she stepped onto the elevator and in my world it's like getting on the elevator with like Beyonce or Tim Keller and so I'm like freaking out I'm like oh my gosh how many Tess is on the elevator with me but you know in, and I was like be cool Bonnie just be cool <laughs> like, um, so that was kind of fun but yeah she grew up in a very violent neighborhood in fact before her mom her mom really does leave her for a long time she mom eventually comes back but her mom leaves her for a long time like nine months alone with a book of food stamps, $20 in cash, and her little brother to care take for. Um, but one day, her someone breaks into their house, beats her mom up right in front of her, steals some things, and Harmony calls the police, and the police won't come because it's already dark and it's too scary for them to come. 
So the only reason her mom survives is that a neighbor saw the situation and takes her mom to the hospital for her. Um, and so that's the neighborhood in L.A. where she grew up. This boy does move in. He does groom her with Burger King. Uh, she jokes now that she feels a little ripped off because other girls get groomed with jewelry and she just got Burger King. <laughs> but uh, so he does move in and he does drive her down the strip and threaten to sell her. And she actually goes to a male teacher and says, my boyfriend thinks I should work at the strip club. I don't think that I should. So there's her gut showing up again. Right, but at this point her gut's betrayed her, or she thinks it has, right? And so she says to him, I don't think I should. And he says, oh, you should, and tell me which strip club you're working at, and I'll come visit you. So again, yes. The picture I want you to get, which you're definitely getting, is it's not just that the women are not educated or that they come from a place of poverty. It's almost quite literally they've had goodness withheld from them, right? And so there is like, yeah, of course you work at the strip club. So she works at the strip club for a long time. Um, eventually she finds Jesus, and I, get, I forget how that happens, and then continues to work at the strip club for like another year, but she goes to church. And so as she's going to church, and the truth of Jesus is sipping in slowly, and then she'll be at the strip club and men will eyeball her, and she'll be like, you don't get to eyeball me. You don't even have a relationship with me. And then all of a sudden, the lies that she's been told by the manager these 15, I think it's 15 years that she works at the strip club, start to fall to the wayside because she's hearing instead the truth from the choir singing at church, the Bible study that she went to on Wednesday night, right? And so a question for me that was asked to me by a survivor that we work side by side with, uh, Jasmine Grace, she also wrote a book, Diary of Jasmine Grace, is... It's one thing to love Jasmine Grace now, who's clean, sober, has a stable job, but can you love Harmony coming straight out of the strip club? She probably comes to church dirty sometimes, stinky sometimes, maybe high. Can she still come to your Bible study, right? Like, those are the things that we have to set with in this, like, moment. Okay, so Harmony finds Jesus, leaves the strip clubs, Continues to go to that church, gets plugged into a regular job, and now she runs the largest, so she does what I do, but a much higher capacity, over in Los Angeles. They go into 130 strip clubs every year. Um, they go to porn shows and hand out Bibles that say Jesus loves strippers um, and Jesus loves porn stars on the front. And it's basically, I think it's just the New Testament, but it might just be the Gospel of John, the legit Gospel, NIV version, and they've riddled it with stories of people leaving the sex industry. So it's pretty clever. Um, and she can do that type of thing. And she's married and has two kids. And um, she's also continuing to learn more about herself as like all of us during COVID. I made a joke to Holly, she's my roommate for the week, um, that my dress shrunk during COVID. <laughs> you know, and so for like her, who's been, the, uh, like, the exterior has been her beauty for a long time, and now she's a mom of two and COVID, and, you know, so her body has changed. And just having a husband who consistently loves her helps her to even grow and heal even more. So I think the groups were 50-50. I think all of you chose the same path until the end. So this group here ended up in the strip clubs and the group back here. And you guys 
ended up where? Away. Ran away the on the street. And did you get to the part where the police officer? Yes. So I had to split the story at some point because we do only get one April 21st, right? But 2022. So the other story that they landed in is a woman named Audrey Porter. She's an African-American woman from, uh, from Boston. And at 14 years old, she's ran away from, uh, first of all, an abusive home life. The police pick her up. They realize she's a minor. They put her in foster care. She's sexually abused in foster care, so she runs away from foster care. Some of the girls at foster care tell her that you can make cash if you're willing to prostitute yourself on the street. And they tell her the, the hot ticket street to go. She goes, again, she's only 14 or 15 at most here in the story. And a white male cop picks her up arrest her because that was it's legal to arrest women in prostitution and minors in prostitution and says to her after they're out of sight that if you perform oral sex I'll let you go and I won't arrest you and she gets out of that situation because it's the first introduction she's had to this so she just bawls and she's she says that she was so gross with like snot all over her face that he just pushes her out of the car so the issue is so but she does end up in prostitution for a while, I think into her 30s. Um, and when, but now birth control in the state of Mass is free. I don't, I don't know if that's true everywhere, but back then it wasn't. And so her form of birth control is abortions, which she'll, she can, you know, says publicly. Um, so she too gets out of that life and she started her own organization called My Life, My Choice. And it's really clever. Once again, they go into juvenile detention homes and meet with young girls who have just been arrested and they only hire survivors to meet with those young girls and say, you think this guy loves you? Let me tell you where your, your story is headed. And they can do that in a way that I can't, right? So those are some pretty amazing women that I really respect. Um, how's everyone doing? We're good to just keep plugging along? Okay, all right, I do wanna share with you some stats. So in the strip clubs, because here's what's really important to me, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is that we, uh, a survivor said this, traffickers are really good at recognizing vulnerable people. We, the church, have to be better. Here's what statistics tell us. And it's also important to me that you hear women in strip clubs as victims, right, with the power to within themselves to step out of the situation with the right help, with the right support, but not the perpetrators. Because again, no little girl wants to be a stripper when she grows up, right? Um, so 68% of women who work in strip clubs report signs of post-traumatic stress disorder at a level equal to men returning from war, right? 70% um, are little girls who have aged out of the foster care system, just with nowhere to go. No real skills, maybe not 70. Um, and these statistics are from Dr. Melissa Farley's website. You would just Google Dr. Melissa Farley and you'll be able to bring her up from the University of San Francisco, World Without Exploitation, and the Department of Justice. Um, the average age of entry into the sex industry here in the United States is 12 years old. And when I say that statistic 
to survivors. Some of them are glad that I know that. And some of them would say that seems high. Right? And so there's a real situation going on here. And I think one positive statistic, and then I actually want to go back to the 12-year-old part, is the number one reason, and again, this is the statistic I got from Dr. Melissa Farley, who's from my account, not a Christian. Um, if she would become a Christian, that would be super exciting, but she's a huge powerhouse for women. Um, is the number one reason women leave the sex industry is one trusting relationship encouraging them of a different way of living. And I hear that over and over again from the survivors that we work with. Chelsea was desperate. She said, she says in her testimony, she was screaming inside for years for someone to ask her, are you okay? Trisha Grant was forced to work in the strip clubs. They take them in a big van. They take them inside. So the stories that you hear that women are just college students earning their way through school, um, they're told that story. They're handed that story. Your name is now Betty. You're a college girl working your way through school. Your degree is science. That's handed to them. If you think a little bit about it, back to your college days, may that be last year, a couple decades, whatever it might be, these women work at night. They work until 2 in the morning. There's some kind of substance most often in their body to get them through it. There's sex acts. Take That's all very exhausting. How do you possibly get up and function in school? So that, that, like, like that story just can't, it's not feasible. It's not most, most likely not feasible, right? So Trish is given a story, given a name. She's forced in the strip clubs. She works in trafficking in the strip clubs. One day her dad walks into the strip club. She thinks to herself, great, I'm going to get rescued. This is it. I'm going to get rescued. She goes over to sit by her dad. So he sees her. He literally puts his hat down, puts his hand here and says, I'm just going to drink my beer. And then we're going to forget that this happened. Because like many of us, he has the perspective that women want to be in the strip club. Mm. Right? So he didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to embarrass himself. And I think, again, this is our place of like, we can't ignore these things that are happening. Um, And so for Route 1, years ago, I had a conversation in a coffee shop. Um... And the question was asked, how do we reach women sexually exploited or trafficked on the North Shore of Boston, which again is one of the more affluent communities. Um, And it's where Gordon Conwell is located. It's where I went to seminary. And the answer was make baskets and take it to strippers working on Christmas Eve. And I thought, why not me? And why not other women who look like me? And I met my first stripper. Uh, later in Kentucky as I shadowed a woman who took hot homemade meals into clubs and she was 62 years old still stripping she looked 62 she had c-section scars saggy arms (laughs) when I started this ministry those things didn't exist for me and now they do so I'm a little more (laughs) careful (laughs) but um crow's feet and so in that moment of meeting this 62 year old I realized This was not her desire. Her daughter now worked at the strip club. This was not this grandmother's desire. She had ran away from home and she thought, I'll work, this is how they sell it. I'll work at the strip club for the summer. I'll make oodles of cash and then I'll be able to get out of this abusive home life. And it just never happens. Um, So that's also when I realized that I had to repent 
of what I believed about women who worked in the sex industry and relearn the stats that I just shared with you, right? And so we go into strip clubs. We're in three of the largest cities in Mass. Um, we meet with about 70 women a week. We have had women leave the sex industry because we're there. Um, we go in with little gifts that say you are treasured. On Christmas Eve, we still bring these big, huge baskets full of all sorts of girly items that, you know, you would want in your room, but maybe you don't necessarily buy yourself, like cute socks, lip gloss, earrings. But then throughout the year, we go back weekly. The teams go in with little gifts. Maybe it's one bottle of nail polish per woman with just a tag that says you are treasured. And the women have taken those tags over the years and taped them all around their mirrors at home and taken pictures to show them to us. Um, and when we go in at Valentine's, we've brought in roses. And the women just really respond well. Um, they've had they've said statements like, this is my favorite part, and they point to the sign, the you are treasured. Um, one of our dancers, after knowing us for a couple of years, she's like, I'm treasured, and you ladies are treasured too, right? And so it's just like this, it's just an excuse to get in the door, you know, it's just a connection point. I've had dancers ask for prayer right there on the strip club floor, and we do it. I've had bouncers ask for prayer on the strip club floor, and we do it. And when we looked up, they had tears coming down their face. Um, during COVID, the clubs closed, so we had to, like everyone else, pivot. <laughs> um, I think the funniest pivot situation was Suave. One of their hairspray bottles, their pump hairspray bottles, they turn into a pump sanitizer bottle. <laughs> I was like, yep, that's pivoting. Um, and so what we did was we reached out to women that we already had a relationship with through Facebook and said, we'd like to still serve you, but we don't know how. And then we got flooded with phone calls. They wanted us to pray with them. They wanted advice because they were turning their managers in for sexual assault, and they had an interview with the FBI. They wanted help to get laundry done, groceries, and we got invited into their private homes, which hadn't happened yet, well, a couple of times, but even at a higher percentage because they couldn't wait for us to come into the clubs. The clubs didn't exist. So that was uh, that was kind of a special you know, time, and we got to give pretty focused care to women. We had women call us up for references so that they could get a job at Costco. Um, and so it was just, I mean, so things are happening and things are moving. Um, I'm yes. Yeah. Does your, you are treasured ministry, I mean, do you get pushback and resistance from the owners and the bouncers? And yep, that's like a top. Yeah, we can definitely do some questions now. It's a good breaking point. Um, that's like a top five question I'm asked. Uh, we haven't gotten into every club that I've wanted to get into, right? So, yes. And then we found some other ways in. Um, we... So the woman who trained me is Kentucky, and Kentucky is a very different culture than Boston, Mass. And at first, we went around asking permission of every owner. So, And this was probably really stupid on my part. I would go alone <laughs> to the strip club in the daytime and ask the manager's permission. Um, and we would get a few yeses and some hell no's, <laughs> right? And so I was like, okay, this is not working for us. And I began to pray and dig in, and then I found Harmony's 
ministry over in LA and they just show up with gifts already done up like they're supposed to be there and ask the bouncers and that's what we started doing and we get in. We also, I learned this one the hard way, we don't go into any strip club that we haven't prayed over weekly from inside our, we drive to the club from inside our car, stretch out our hands, lock the doors, pray over the strip club weekly for four to six months. And that does a couple of things. First of all, breaking up the soil, right? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. Two, it tells me who's committed. If you can't show up regularly to pray, then you probably can't go into strip clubs and build relationships. And it builds unity with the team and safety. Yes, ma'am. Um, about six months ago, I discovered on YouTube uh, a gal named uh, Cindy McGill. And Cindy goes into porn conventions with the team and um, to Burning Man and places like that. Mm-hmm. And she has said that as Christians, in order to touch these people, you have to have a new language. You can't use your your regular mm-hmm. churches. She wrote a book called Words That Work. Mm-hmm. And I purchased and read and it's it's a, a blockbuster as far as how to approach and what words to use, how to change your Christianese into worldies mm-hmm. so that you're you're saying the same thing but in ways that they understand. I would highly recommend you watch her on YouTube, Christy, uh, Cindy McGill. I love that. Yeah. And I think sometimes that becomes a hang up for evangelicals who want to serve with us because we do pray with the women in the clubs, but as they ask. So we don't bring in tracts, we don't bring in Bibles, um, and we don't bring up God, right? We let, the, inevitably, they bring up God and we roll with it, mm-hmm. right? But we do that for a couple of reasons. One, quite frankly, 60% of evangelical men look at porn three or times or more a month, which means they're also buying sex. And a lot of the women have been sexually abused by deacons and pastors. So we want to be clear, we love Jesus, but we're not going to be that type of Christian, right? So I love that you mentioned that. Um, and, and like again, we've had women ask us for Bibles, and then we, we have them in our car ready, and we go and give them one. But the other reason is we want, they've, they've had people agenda them their whole life. We want them to know they they have the power here, right? Um, so, other questions? Yes, ma'am. Are you aware of organizations like uh, Covenant House and Awaken? I'm aware of Covenant House. Awaken's a new one for me. Well, it may be regional. I'm from Reno, Nevada. Yeah. And Oh, yeah, we can talk about Nevada, too. Is legal in a lot of places in yeah. Nevada. And my daughter had a a friend and they were 12 and I was taking them to an Awana club at the church and I just casually asked her in the car one time well what do you want to do when you grow up and she said well I haven't decided if I want to be a hooker or a bartender mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she's 12 and she's she was not the brightest bulb mm-hmm. and she was thinking this is how she can support herself because mm-hmm. she's not capable mm-hmm. of going to college or even it's, it's a wonder if she finished high school. Uh, 
so to support herself, she has this idea that there's good money uh -huh. in um, being and working in a brothel uh -huh. or um, being a bartender, and she hadn't decided which one paid better yet. Yeah, one of the towns that were okay. So two things. I actually want to come back to the legalization of prostitution um, and kind of speak to that, which we'll get to just later, a little later. Um, and I know you weren't raising that, but I, I saw your name on the list and I saw that you were from Nevada and I was like, Nevada? <laughs> I got a little intimidated. I was like, she probably can teach me some things. Um, and so we want to talk about that. And part two just left me. I don't know. But... Um, a town that we're in, Springfield, Mass., 90% of the students are on food assistance. And so it's a natural, they have four strip clubs in their town. And a casino. And a casino. Are you from, oh no, but you just know where Springfield, Mass. is. Um, okay. Yeah, they just opened the casino and it really enraged me because I just know it's going to uptake prostitution and women being exploited. Um, and so a natural out for girls in that type of poverty situation or what they think, right, is I'll just work at the strip club. Um, the thing about strip clubs, and then we'll switch gears and we'll do another little activity together as a group and I'll take a few more questions and we'll talk about a few more things. But people believe that uh, women who work in the strip clubs make lots of money. And by and large, they really don't. They actually have to pay to walk through the front door. So in the strip clubs in Springfield, there's a $5 cover charge for the girls, for the women who work there, that you have to pay to take off your clothes. In Boston, it's $75 on the weekend. And you don't make that money back. I mean, maybe the $5 you make back, but then you're in debt, and you're in debt to some pretty violent people. It's, it's like a, it's a huge... So when I met that 62-year-old, I think the other thing I realized is that grandmothers are beautiful, but it's a different type of beauty, right? And the strip clubs have very little to actual, like, to do with sex, right, and sexuality. It has to do with greed and authority and power and abuse and um, getting your needs. We all have needs. We all want to be nurtured. We all want to be loved, men and women alike. Just like no little girl wants to be a stripper when she grows up, no little boy wants to buy sex when he grows up. He wants a nurturing relationship, but somewhere along the way, there's enough hurt, there's enough glitch, right? Um, time, yes. I have a question. Yes. Um, the more I've gotten to know you, the more tuned in I am about mm -hmm. all this. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of, and people feel very firm about, well, Women do make a lot of money in the strip clubs. It's a valid way to make money mm -hmm, if you need mm -hmm. to uh, for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard this other thing. Well, maybe it's like that in some strip clubs, but it's not like that in the high-end strip clubs. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I will. Okay. Yeah, I will. Um, first of all, even if they do make a lot of money, it doesn't make it any, any less awful, right? It doesn't make it any less abuse. There may be a few clubs where they take home cash money, but typically what I've seen, Springfield, Boston, Miami, I have friends or colleagues that do this in Wisconsin, Kentucky, they make the money when they go home with the men at night. That's where they make the money, right? So I, there's nothing else I can say except for like, 
if you want to take that information, like you're like, hey, I know someone. I've been into about a hundred strip clubs at this point, and I haven't met one yet that didn't have a crazy cover charge, that didn't play tricks and games with the women to get them to work longer hours and not get paid for it. Um, and they're really, it's really quite a bizarre situation because they get paid hourly, but it's like a waitress's fee, so it's like two twenty-five an hour, at least in mass, two twenty-five an hour. Contract ten ninety-nine pay. Right. Well, they get both. Yeah. So they're treated both. You have to pay to be there because you're a contractor, and they also give them a small paycheck. And so it's like a weird little situation. Yeah. So I don't know. Is that helpful? Yeah, it is. I, I just need to understand the, what this person's definition of high-end strip club is. Well, I would ask them how they know that information. <laughs> That's where I would start. And then... You can bring in some of these facts that you just learned, and also I can get you, like if you pick up this thing, um, demandabolition.org has a lot of information. World Without Exploitation, which is on here, during COVID, uh, that was probably the best thing to happen to them, because they were kind of splintered before, and now they've pumped out hour-long webinars, mostly led by survivors, right? And you can just get on and list. They just store them on their website. They're free, and they're very informative. Yes, sir. Um, one of the things we've noticed in the area of rapidly people transitioning in North Carolina is a real push to try to change zoning. And one of the things churches can be aware of is whenever there's a zoning change, mm. you need to investigate what that allows. Them to yes. Them. Yes. Well, yeah, so I would say you can zone to keep out strip clubs, but exploitation is in your community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's a struggle. Um, let's do this. If you can hold your questions, I don't want you to forget, but I do want to talk us through a little exercise I think will be helpful. But I'm grateful for the questions. And we have all the way to 11. Is that right? Yes. Is that okay? Okay. I wanted to make sure. <laughs> I didn't actually know that. I thought we only went till 1030. I'm glad I looked at the the schedule like three days ago. I was like, oh, 11. Okay. But you know what I learned in seminary? No one is ever sad that the pastor went short. So <laughs> I was banking on that. <laughs> So when we think about the story that you went through and some of these other things that we've talked about, there are three people involved in exploitation. Who does it, not that they're equally involved but or willingly, but who, who does it take to make exploitation happen? The exploitee, the exploiter, and the customer. Yes, right. So we have the vulnerable person, the, the seller, and the buyer. And so we have this chart here, and it's also that little postcard that's in the back, if you want to take it with. It's also on our website, so if you went to our website and took a screenshot, you could do that. Um, so we have the vulnerable person, we have the, the seller, we have the buyer. A common name for buyers is John. We've referred to them as Johns. But again, in working with survivors, they keep me straight, <laughs> and they don't like us to use the name John because it gives the men amenity, and the women don't get amenity. They get called awful names like slut and whore and prostitute, right? And the other reason is there's nice men named John, right? So it gets a little funky. Um, but So we have these three people, 
And when the vulnerable person meets the seller and they groom them and coerce them or push fear onto them, then they make them pliable to introduce them to buyers. The average buyer is a white male, 35 years of age, married with two kids. And I definitely have seen car seats and minivans in the strip club parking lots. And they are male social workers, law enforcement, or lawmakers. And I have definitely seen cops in the strip clubs, not as cops, as buyers. In fact, a whole group of cops, what is that called when you're a group? <laughs> Unit? I don't know. Anyway, squad, thank you. Came into a strip club and it was one of their birthdays, so they all got blowjobs. Hey, I bet you didn't think you would hear that word <laughs> at General Assembly. Um, but it's just awful. And then for the social workers, they are pairing up male social workers, and women can be buyers too, but male social workers with these young girls. So you're alone for hours in a car, right? And then you help this young girl, and then they exploit the young girl's vulnerability, and they're like, well, I just helped you, and I gave you a Burger King, or I gave you a, um, an ice cream cone. Maybe you could do me a favor, right? And so there's these huge issues taking place. And I think you see on the chart, it does start with broken relationships and broken systems. So uh, we used to, a woman on my team used to pray for the strip clubs to close, but that's not gonna change anything. They closed all during COVID. They were closed for 18 months. Exploitation still happened. It just got moved underground. A thing that's happening at our colleges is they, you know, job fair booths, they set up job fair booths and they have job fair booths called for sugar daddies. Right, and so they get away with it. It's legal because they advertise it as a dating service for older rich men who just don't have time to find a companion. But almost always sex is expected, right? That would be one I would recommend to watch or listen to if you can. In World Without Exploitation, there's one on sugar daddies, the truth about, and it's two women who escaped that life. Um, my email is also on here, so if you lose any of this information or if you want to email me for feel free to email me for follow-ups or whatnot so that's prevention and intervention are two ways that we can fight trafficking and i think you see here um that i don't know if you can actually see all the way in the back but prayer is our number one weapon as christians to fight trafficking Prayer is underutilized. It's a resource that never expires. It doesn't run out. There's not a limited amount of it, right? It's not like toilet paper in the middle of COVID season. It's always available to us. And us as Christians, I think we do a pretty crappy job of doing it, of utilizing it. Prayer against exploitation in your city. Prayer against poverty in your city. Prayer that God would reveal to you, open your eyes and your ears for the women who are in your congregation who have been exploited. Because they're there. Statistics tells us they're there. Um, awareness and training. Yay, you're already doing that by coming this morning. Because um, now you have tools to take back to some of these bogus conversations. And, I, and I'll give you a few more too before we leave. Modeling healthy relationships. Things like Paige Patterson, and Ravi Zacharias, which is a real shame, we've got to call those things out. 
right? We can't stand with the perpetrators, even if the perpetrators is cloaked, right, with a stole. We have to, because that tells women who have been abused, young girls who have been abused, little boys who have been abused, they see me. It gives witness to their story. In your marriages, when you model healthy marriages, when you model healthy employee-employer relationships, women exploited see that and they're like, oh, I don't have to be abused at work. There's a different way to do employment. You know what I mean? So if you think about it, go back to Becky, Harmony. If you're 14 when you started, and she was abused before that, right? By her mom's boyfriends. When you start being abused and lied to about how employment works, you don't know that there's good employers out there, right? You just don't, you know what you know. We all know what we know. Um, so just modeling healthy relationships. Audrey Porter, after she had a couple of kids, she was hanging out with some other women, some Christian women, who were like, the way she described it, she was like, these women are kind to their kids. Like, they were patient to their kids. They knelt down to talk to them. They didn't just command them to move from one location to another. So Audrey saw another way of doing parenting just by watching Christian women do parenting well, right? So that's just, isn't that interesting? Those things are all available to you. So while trafficking is this big beast and it is being tackled from several different angles, you don't necessarily have to get stuck in how am I going to help fight trafficking? You can start today by praying, right? You can start today by continuing to provide healthy relationships as a model. And if you're not in a healthy relationship, decide you know what that means to you. Do you and your spouse need to do therapy with a trustworthy counselor right, for your sake, but also for the sake of the kingdom at large? You know. Um, so, and this is where Route One currently comes in. We intervene. We go to strip clubs, we meet women who are sexually exploited, and we connect them to the resources they need to leave. Sometimes women identify, one woman identified that she couldn't leave the strip club because she doesn't have a driver's license. So she's dependent on her boyfriend to drive her. So for two years, she would tell me this story about how she needs a driver's license. Every once in a while, she would come with bruises all over her arm um, and tell me that story too. And then one day, she came into the strip club. She ran in, grabbed my arm, and I was like, oh my gosh, what is about to happen? She pulled me over to a side corner, and she's like, just, just stay right here. I have something to show you. And she went back to the dressing room, and she came back to show me her driver's ed book. Oh, yeah. So, And she's left now. She works at Costco as a cashier. Um, we've also tutored women to get like their CNAs and all that. Anyway, so intervention. Again, here, we can pray. You can report. You know, it's a silly little thing that you see in the airports. If you see something, say something. Um, I'm going to give you a trafficking hotline number in a minute. You can put it in your phone. And if you see something, report. It's anonymous. It can be as anonymous as you want it to be. They, they will ask if you want to give your name. You do not have to. And the thing is, if you got it wrong, it's actually a fine situation. What's the worst that's happened? Maybe you've interrupted somebody's evening, but if you got it right, you've intervened in trafficking. Um, in New Hampshire, again, affluent, white, cul-de-sac community, a friend of mine got introduced to trafficking. She was doing her dishes like she does every day, and curtains open. All of a sudden, 
the SWAT team, FBI SWAT team, lined her little cul-de-sac neighborhood. And they were arresting her neighbor. And he had uh, pimped out his stepdaughter on the playground from when she was four years old until 16. It took 215 calls to get him arrested. So you could, yep, yep. And we're getting better at it, but yes. So you could be called 215, right? Um, so, yes, so that's that. The other place that we're moving in the next three to five years is prevention. Um, we want to expand into more strip clubs, and Rhode Island is actually very close to us, so we'll be moving there into more clubs in Boston and more of the clubs in Springfield. But in about four years or so, well, in about three to five years, we hope to be in middle schools because, again, the average age of entry is 12 to both help young girls identify this might be what's going on in your life and to provide teachers with the curriculum they need to see what they're seeing and to call for help. Um, in Springfield, which again has the issue of poverty, you don't even need a teacher's license to teach there. They're just happy to get warm bodies to fill, right? And so we can be those warm bodies, right? Like we can show up, we can, I mean, they've already asked us to come and then COVID hit, and so we're going to revisit that. Um, but that's where we're headed. Um, you guys asked some really good questions, and I think you took me off my notes. Yes. <laughs> Let me just say this next. Yeah, I think we have time for this. I definitely, I like questions. I feel like it's a better way to get you the answers that you want. I don't think anyone here, obviously, we're all either teaching elders or ruling elders or spouses of that. But again... The work I do as a teaching elder uh, in the Presbytery of the East is founded in Christ, right? And what he's done in my own life and um, founded in scripture. So in Genesis, God, yes, Jesus as well, the triune God creates, right? He's creating carrots after carrot kind and mules after mule kind and snakes after politician kind (laughs) and... um, He does this for 25 verses, and then he interrupts it, and he says, let us make man in our own image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. And the Hebrew words there, the word is Adam, right? A-D-O-M, transliterated. And it means humankind, or it also means dirt. And so Jesus says, God says, look at this other human. And he gives us a blueprint to reproduce and make other image bearers, right? And he says to, to Adam male and Adam female, be fruitful and multiply. That's before the fall. So sex is not a dirty word. Sex is not a dirty thing, right? It is, it is within this covenant that God ordained, but it's not a dirty word. And all of that takes place before the fall. Um, and so there is each woman in the strip clubs, who are probably barely waking up about now, are made in the image of God, right? And they deserve, and they experience broken sexuality probably from a very young age. Because regardless if you're a heterosexual Christian couple who's not married and having sex, or a woman working in a strip club, both is broken sexuality, right? And they deserve the tr- like the truth and the gospel brought to them. I think it says in Romans, how will they know unless we bring it to them? And how can we go unless we are sent? Right? 
Um, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, the whosoever there is the pastor's wife and the prostitute. Right? So it matters. And again, back to the genealogy of Christ. And again, you guys know this. And um, there's Rahab, right? Who's, I mean, just directly called a prostitute. Um, and then there's Ruth, who was a foreigner, who was isolated. She was in a position of poverty. Her life was at risk. And yet Boaz intercedes and gives her protection all along the way. Not just where he takes her in as his wife, but along the way. He says, I need you to leave some grain behind so that Ruth can gather it up. He says directly to her, don't go to any other field because I don't want you to be accosted. Right? Stay here where I can keep you safe. Um, and these women, Tamar, right, who's raped uh, by her brother, these women are in the genealogy of Christ. Right? So again, it matters to Christ. And it should matter to us. Um, okay. Couple more things. How are you guys doing? Still doing good? Okay. <laughs> You're great. Okay. Oh, yes, ma'am. Let's do that. It is 888-373-7888. Yes, it is 888-373-7888. And definitely put it in your phones. I didn't put it in my phone because like, well, that's an easy number to remember. And then one day I needed it and I was like, oh, where is this? So um, if you go get your toes done at a salon where the person doesn't speak English, they are most likely being trafficked. They're at least illegally employed because the test that you take to do that type of work, I always forget the name, is only given in English. And so if you don't know enough English to speak to someone, you probably don't know if it's English to pass that exam, right? And so you're illegally employed, which makes you a vulnerable person. Um, at least the last time I checked, it was only given in English. It depends on locality. Some places it's actually only available. Oh, so that's very interesting too. Um, okay, so let's talk about. I do want to talk about legalization and what's coming down the pike. But let me just give us some directive as like pastors. And I know there's pastors and ruling elders here. You have 52 Sundays in a year. You could spend one talking about domestic violence and how it's bad. You could spend one talking about sex blindly and use all the right words. Penis, vagina, orgasm, arousal. It's important. Um, you could invite a survivor to come share her story on a Sunday morning. And again, the average age of entry is 12. So I understand, I'm not a parent, but I understand if you may want to protect your kids, but if you're not talking about sex in church, I guarantee you they're being educated with their classmate and their classmate comes with their own props, right? Um, the reason you, the, every church I go to, doesn't matter the church. I've spoken at churches that are storefront, big, huge 1,500, churches of 40 people, college campuses. Every time there's at least one woman who comes up to me and says, that was my story and I've never told anybody. Why does she feel safe telling me? 
I don't know her. Because I'm talking about sex. Because I'm calling out the sin that's happening. And she knows I can handle her story. So if you as pastors are not talking about sex, or if your churches are not talking about sex in the healthy way, me who's been sexually abused, I'm not going to raise my hand and tell you that. I'm going to keep it here. 25% of women in the United States have been sexually abused. 25%. Not 25% who work in strip clubs. 25%. That means you're in the room right now, because there's more than four of us. There's more than three of us. Right? And that means they're already in your congregations. So again, if you want to reach exploited women, they're there. They may not be trafficked. They've been abused. Um... Don't stand on the side of perpetrators. Nine out of ten pastors, when faced with the situation of a man sexually abusing a woman in their church, stood with the perpetrator. I had it happen to me. A guy was sexually harassing me at a church I was attending. I went to him. This is late in life. Like This was like four or five years ago. I went to the pastor. I said... This is what happened, and uh, then I had to like work my way around what had happened as well. And I said to him, I don't think I feel comfortable attending church anymore while this person attends. And the pastor said to me, good luck. I hope you find a good church. And then the Christian nonprofit that I worked for, because I ended up having to get a restraining order, which is actually not that easy. Um, it meant going to court twice. It meant giving up a whole days of work twice, which I can do because I work for myself. But if I work at Walmart, right, how do I take time out of my job to put a harassment order? So I got this restraining order. I have to go to court twice because he didn't show up either time. And my boss at the time, who's a Christian man in a Christian organization, came to court and sat on the other side for the perpetrator mm-hmm. because the perpetrator is a homeless man. So we ha- like just don't stand on the side of perpetrators, no matter how famous they are or how homeless they are. Um, you give witness. When you're willing to talk about sexual abuse from the pulpit, when you're willing to talk about domestic violence from the pulpit and call it out as wrong, you give witness to all the little girls everywhere who wish somebody saw them. Right, And so you have this opportunity. You might trigger some things too. So maybe before you give your sermon, definitely do it. Get some therapists in mind. Who are some therapists in the community that you can point people to? If you're not a trained therapist, do not talk people through this type of therapy. And please do not say things like, let's just pray the trauma away. Right? If I broke my arm, you would insist that I go to a specialist to get it fixed. You wouldn't just pray it away. Well, you might pray first, but you know what I'm saying? The same with our minds. People need healing. Um, okay, I've already given you the hotline. Find counselors in your area. If you are a ruling elder here today, help your pastor find counselors in your area. Um, Chelsea and Trisha were both dying for people to see them. Um Try to read the signs. You know, if you're out to dinner and a little, there's a very younger looking woman of one ethnicity with another older man of a different ethnicity, or even the same, and she doesn't seem to be making eye contact, he seems to do all the talking, that's probably a trafficking situation. You can politely, don't call them out, you're not vigilantes, you're not trained to do that, but... You can leave the restaurant, call this 800 number, report what you're seeing, report what the address is, 
again, it's not the SWAT team you're calling. You don't have that type of power. They're just recording it. And maybe it's a maybe it's a misdiagnosis. Okay, fine. Then it probably won't get reported ever again. Or maybe it's call 215, right? Um, I would love anyone who's interested to have a follow-up conversation with each of you just to kind of see where your churches are at. Um, there are strip clubs all over the U.S. Michigan has 29 strip clubs in it. Pennsylvania has 27 strip clubs in it. Connecticut has 127 strip clubs in it. Um, yeah, for the size of the state. Florida has 227 strip clubs in it. The same amount as Texas. They're very different size states. So strip clubs are everywhere. And I think that women in your churches could also be women equipped to go into strip clubs and meet women who work there. Right? Um, I do want to tell you a bunch of happy stories of women exiting. And I also am aware of the time. So sometimes I do this with my staff. Do you guys want to hear a little bit about legalization? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because we brought up Nevada. Yes. Can you hold? Would you be willing to hold that, or do you feel like it plays right? I don't want to lose it. Tell you more. Yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask. You obviously seem to be working with what I would call kind of a presenting problem. Uh huh. You know, um, those. Do you all work at all with? So what? So where do these women go next? And how do they mm -hmm. transition into um, a healthier life? Yes. Can you remind me of that? Because yes. I'll just finish this part off, and then I think the rest of our time could be Q&A. Yes. Um, okay. So there is a push to legalize prostitution, and it is legal in some counties of Nevada, and even a section of Wyoming, it's legal. Um, so where do I start? So, like, this past year, is it this year or last year, there was a bill being passed to change foster care systems in New Hampshire. It was a great bill. It was going to be very effective. And then what happened in the 11th hour is they somebody uh, stuck an amendment on to legalize prostitution in New Hampshire. But other people, like myself and others, knew this, right? So we circulated a petition, but the whole bill had to get killed, right? Um, so legalization of prostitution means full, full legalization. Sometimes it's called full decriminalization, right? So be very careful because they'll try to sell it as decriminalization. But if you have the word full in front of it, it's actually just legalization. Um, means legalizing all parts. It would be legal to be a pimp. It'd be legal to buy. It would be legal to sell. Okay. So that's legalization and full decriminalization. Decriminalization means decriminalizing women who sell. So they're, that's not, they're not a crime, but to buy is a crime. And that gets a little wonky, and then you play with words. One thing that I'm willing to get behind, and mostly because it's survivor-led, is a model that's coming. It's in New York right now. Well, I mean, it's not a law right now, but it's in big conversation. It's called the equality model. And again, it's on one of those videos for the world without exploitation. And the equality model would be three-pronged. And it would make it legal to sell, so prostitutes would not be considered uh, the criminals anymore, but illegal to buy. It would also provide resources to women both in and out of the sex industry. 
um, so that they can have healthier lives wherever they're at on the continuum. And then it would educate, and not just educate the women, but educate the buyers. So there's something called a John School. And if you get caught, if you get arrested for buying a minor for the first time, now we all know if they're arrested that they've bought more than once, most likely. But if you get arrested for buying a minor for the first time, you can get that expunged if you attend this thing called a John School. And they're working out the kinks of what that would look like, but a survivor will come and share her story and tell you the harms that you've done to her, the community, your own body, your own family. You have to learn a bunch of different things, what's going on with women, because the hope, and then you pay a big fee to be there, big fee, like it's $1,000 for the class. And then the hope is that education, you'll go back and tell your seven buddies, right? And then we'll change more of the demand side through the school, and then the money that's gotten from that school is that's where we get the resources to give survivors. There's a mixed view on it, even from survivors. Some survivors I know love the idea, participate in it, go and volunteer their time to share their story. Other survivors want nothing to do with the John School. Um, but if it, there was a model that I was ever going to back, it would be the equality model. I feel like it's the one that's most honest to the situation and it's the only one that provides resources back to the victims. Um, another phrase, I just want to, since I have you, <laughs> sometimes we get caught up in what to say as Christians because we don't want to be unkind. So you can say a person in prostitution. Um, you can say a person exploited or trafficked, a victim of trafficking. But even the word prostitute kind of puts the onus on the woman, right? Um, or the man. And one phrase you should never use is sex worker. And I know it seems super polite, but that's the problem, is it makes something polite that was never meant to be polite. And when you first think sex, you automatically think consensual. And once money is exchanged, that's not consensual. Right? And so it's just like, it's a, anyway, that's just like a, that's a freebie. <laughs> okay. Um, women leaving, or yeah, women leaving. Yeah, so what we do is we connect with women on a regular basis. It's very slow. We build relationships with them, and then we the women identify different needs. Like, we've had women identify that they need child care, and so we were able to connect them to Head Start, which is free, right, or a very reduced rate, so they can have free child care. And then as they move, so each woman is different. At this time, we don't have, like, a set program, and I kind of like that because then it still honors like their humanness and their each person's story. But our teams are trained and then we have a list of resources on our website. In fact, on our website, we have a little link that says industry girls only and all that. I mean, you could click it if you want. All it does is give them a list of resources to food or to clothing or to whatever it might be. Um, so that's how we move them into the next. We have connections to counselors, to safe houses, to rehab centers. Um, I've driven women over state lines in the middle of the night. All they had was their purse to take them to a rehab center. Does that help? I was just curious if you had mentioned that, because that's the end that we work mostly. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, where we're headed, again, as part of our new three- to five-year plan, which I'm super excited about, is to partner with community centers and to launch a... Uh, program but like pretty a fluid uh, with job placement 
Thank you for sitting in the front row and reminding me. Prostitution being legalized is not what we want. I'm sorry I got distracted. Um, here's what happens. When it's legal, your body becomes property of the state. Just like any other product, the gum that you're chewing on right now has an FDA approval. So you're told where you can have sex and where you can't have sex, right? So that's one thing. The brothels in Nevada, the women have to get checked every week. They get a physical every week. And, I'm, and I mean a physical, just to be clear, right? But it's not like regular buyers get a physical every week, right? And Jasmine, who was trafficked all the way from Boston to Nevada, said that that was the place that she felt the most oppressed, because nobody wants to write on a W-2, I work at a brothel, right? So your body belongs to the state. They get to tell you where to have sex, where not to have sex, if during one of those checks. So it's not for the women's safety. This is a little mind game that's being taught. Is that it's for the women's health? No. If you're found with an STD, you can get charged with homicide because you're a risk to the consumer. So it's ridiculous doesn't make it any safer also and again i stole this one from a survivor when the door is closed it's still her and him you can't make him not beat her not rape her you can't make him wear a condom even if it is the law right so we don't want to legalize prostitution i don't think there's anyone in this room i need to convince i just know the arguments started getting very tricky and blurry because they really sell it as women's safety and who doesn't want women to be safe all right, I am for real done now. Um, what other questions do you have? Yes, ma'am. Oh, you did? Well, let me grab this, and then we'll jump back over to Deb. Deborah. Yes. I was just curious if you could kind of give us a sample of what your dialogue sounds like when you're, that initial dialogue. Yep. When you walk in, you said, you know, you don't use, you know, churchy yep. germs and that kind of thing, but I was just curious what that might sound like. Yeah, so... First, there's the prayer just from the cars, and then the very first introduction is right with the bouncers, and we just say, we've brought these gifts uh, for the women, and he says, okay, and usually takes them, but we don't get in that first time. And then once we're in, um, women ask us, so where are you here from? Are you from a church? Are you here from a program? And we'll say, we're all, we all go to church, but we're not one, one main church, which has been true from the birth of Route 1 from the very beginning. Um, women come from all different church backgrounds and everything. And then sometimes the women want to talk more about that. Sometimes they'll try to make a connection. They'll say, my mom used to take me to church. Or when I was a little girl, I went to church camp. Or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And then we just ask them, we ask open-ended questions to keep that conversation going. Um, it's very quick at first, like our conversations are two or three minutes within the first six months. So it's a very slow, it's a slow process. Um, and I'm not the most patient of a person. So God definitely used this to kind of build that into me. Um, but eventually really, it's like a mystery to me and it has to be like the Holy Spirit as well as our consistent showing up. One dancer will think that we're safe. And, or know that we're safe, I should say, because we are, and just spew. She'll just sit down and talk for 30 minutes straight, and just like her whole story, or at least part of her story. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, so that's our initial entering, as we just say, we're a group of women who want you to feel supported. We think that this job is really hard, 
And for the most, nine out of ten dancers respond very well to that. They're like, oh, that's so sweet, or oh my goodness. A couple of women are, you know, put off. A couple of women, and I really am serious statistic-wise, it's like one out of ten will be like, it's not hard, it's easy, I love doing it. Here's the thing. I have not, in the 12 years I've done this, there's not been one woman who's claimed it was easy who kept that story after we get to know her. Right? So, it's not, I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, yes, ma'am, thank you. Uh, I didn't have a question, but um, I have a, a comment and an encouragement. Um, I work with teen parents for 20 years, and um, I know that that the vulnerability that's there, mm-hmm. and that many teen parents are from the foster care system, and when the foster care system releases them, they have no place to go. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the states have changed that, and they, they do some transition stuff and some job training and, and things like that, but for the most part, the kids are just, you're out, goodbye. And uh-huh. I think uh-huh. uh, the Holy Spirit is working in in the hearts of the church to, um, and this is something that's really important for us as ruling elders and teaching elders to get back to our congregations, is one of the best things that you can do to interdict in this whole pattern is to, to encourage your congregations to take foster children and to love them and Agreed. to break that cycle. Agreed. Because teen parenting and sex working is a cycle. Yeah. And there's a curse that comes along with that, a generational yep. curse yep. that you have to break by by loving and breaking that, that. I'm actually glad that you said that. Yeah, one way that Christians can fight trafficking is, and I know it comes with its own risk and there's like special classes you have to go to, but adopt from the foster care system. Mm-hmm. I Again, I don't have kids, and so I want to be careful here, and I also know it's a very delicate subject matter to not be able to get pregnant, but all the money that we invest into IVF, I just think, could you not adopt from the foster care system? But again, I've never desired to give birth to anything, so I don't really have a firm leg to stand on. Um, but yes, or even there's something new happening with the foster care system called respite, respite homes where you don't adopt from the foster care system, but you get trained to take a foster kid for a week or two so that the foster parents can go on vacation. I, that's a great idea. Um, yeah. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. The 215th call, why so many calls? Yeah, I think, so this was probably just a little more than a decade ago. And law enforcement has learned a lot since then. Changing the law so that women aren't seen, so women in prostitution aren't seen as the villains will help, right? I mean, it's a minor. A minor, you can't willingly, by law, have sex with your minor boyfriend, technically, right? And so I don't think you get called out and go to jail for that, but like, do you know what I mean? So why wasn't anything else done? I think a couple of things, again, like I think a decade ago, we didn't know what we were looking at every time. Um, I think he's a person of money. I would guess that he was able to talk his way out of a lot of situations. Um, this is another example. I'm glad you asked that. 
she was the stepdaughter and he bought her her alone she had two other sisters he didn't buy them anything extravagant but he started buying her extravagant gifts when she turned 14 15 16 years old and she was very um and rightfully so i'm trying to think of the right words because i don't like to perpetuate things that aren't true but um she was called out as a very rebellious girl Right, and everyone in the community would be like, "Well, we don't know why," and I don't remember her name, but we'll just call her Susie. We don't know why Susie. She is just awful to that man, and he is an amazing stepdad. And he, like, she demolished. Like, he bought her a car. She demolished it. Right, and so here's another indicator: if there's a young girl in your congregation, and probably young men as well, but since I'm a female, I can only speak from this perspective, who's very acting out pretty violently to their parents or their step-parents, there's probably something going on there or something that has gone on there. It's not just that they're a rebellious girl. I went to a public school, a very angry middle schooler. Um, I beat people up. I like pulled one guy off of his lunch stool and then stepped on him um, and shoved another guy's face in his locker. Like he was getting something out of his locker and I shoved the locker door shut on his face for various reasons. Um, I'm not proud of it, but here's my question is, why didn't anyone notice? I didn't even get in trouble for those things. Why didn't anyone? I went to a very small school, 400 kids total for the whole middle school, right? So I just think again, like, and I just got called a rebellious girl. She's just rebellious. She's rebellious. She'll outgrow it. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what's happening. What has happened? Where is all this anger? Like, little Bonnie weighed 88 pounds. Where is all this anger coming from? You know, and I think it's, it's hard. And grief is hard. And we don't, it's uncomfortable. Um, but I think that if we have each other to lean into, then we can address some of these, church, these things in our churches, right? Because again, we, we need to recognize vulnerable people before pimps do. Right? Uh, other questions? We can probably take one or two more. Yeah. Question about how much overlap there is with the drug addiction, and it just seems like you got two huge problems, and then they mm-hmm. come together. How do you even understand that? Yeah, that is a huge problem. So, women don't typically get into this work addicted to things. They usually become addicted in the work. Um, because again, we're looking like think about it. You're looking at 12, 13, 14 year olds, right? Like Jasmine, who's a good friend of mine, she was clean and sober. She's 18 when she got trafficked for the first time by her boyfriend. Um, but she started using drugs, right, as a way to cope. And then, yes, so that's one thing. But two, yeah, there is just not enough help. So we have. There is some dead, what I call dead time. So we had a woman come to us. She's 21 years old. She had an addiction problem. She had been trafficked at 13 by her mom. Um, And the reason her mom trafficked her is because her mom was trafficked at 13, right? And so she came to us. First, we helped her identify that she's a traffic victim. She's like, that's not me. This is just what my family does. And then we just had to talk through it. She came back a couple weeks later, and our our offices at the time was in a church. And so she showed up, and this dude is with her, and I know exactly who this guy is. I felt a little stuck because he wanted to come in with her. 
and I did. I mean, I let him come in. I mean, I was like, well, I just, I don't know what, I don't know what the harm was going to be if he came in, right? He's not going to snatch me up. Um, but then he let us go have this meeting alone just because I asked him. I said, I need you to stay here. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. Anyways, um, and she got stuck. That's the woman that I drove over the state lines from Mass to New Hampshire take her to a safe home because a lot of these safe homes won't take you unless you're detoxed. But then a lot of the detox centers are not connected to safe homes. So you've detoxed and now you have two weeks to kill before a safe home opens up. What do you do in those two weeks? You relapse. Right? So, yeah, and the thing is, I would think this statistic's a little old. It's probably still accurate. If right now, if right now we one of us knew about a trafficking situation and we went right into the basement of a bar here in Detroit and we found 100 women and we had the ability to take all 100 women out, there would be one bed in the whole United States for those 100 women. It's just a pretty horrific mess. Oh, yeah, okay. Let's do that. I'm so grateful for your time, for you guys being good listeners. Can we pray? We can pray. Yes, we can pray. So in the back, there are some water bottles if you want to take those with you. I already saw someone took one of our magnets. If you want to take a magnet and put it on your fridge and remember to pray for us or pray against exploitation in your town, great. There are other resources back there. This tells you kind of just more about us and where we're headed. And then this is like your response cards. Anyone need a pen? Surveys are being passed out. And Rochelle is handing out surveys. I want to keep being able to do this, but I want to do it better, be more impactful. So please be honest. Putting your name on it is optional, so I won't I won't even know if you say something offensive. And <laughs> um, so I'll have you do that and then Deborah, do you wanna pray for each of us and our give us like two or three minutes and then do you want to send us out with prayer?